How's everybody doing? <laughs> good, good. Hey, we haven't done this in a long time. You should like say hi to someone next to you that you don't know. It can't be a spouse or a friend. <laughs> okay, that was a quick response. <laughs> it was good. It's good. Hey, if you've never been here before, um, we're in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter five today. Uh, chapter four of Daniel is probably one of my favorite chapters I've ever taught. The last couple of weeks that, that we did that, we broke it up into two parts. It's just a really, really fun, fun chapter of the Bible. Chapter five is also pretty fun. We're going to do half of it today, skip a week, and then I'll finish it up um, after next week. Now, that brings me to this point. The baptism services that we do at this church, and I'm not like getting on to anyone and being a jerk or anything. I know it's the same lesson three, four times a year, right? And so our attendance tends to go down a little bit on baptism weekends, which kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. Uh, the reason why is this. Even if you've heard that message 30 times, which is impossible because we only do it four times a year and this church is only six years old. But anyways, <laughs> if you've heard it a lot of times, I want to ask you, please still come to that. Um, we need to rally and support all the people, rally around and support all the people who choose to get baptized. And we typically baptize, you know, 65 to 75 people every couple of months. And that's really, really cool. And that's something we should all you know, celebrate and get behind them and support them. So I just want to ask you, if you've been coming to this church for a long time and you could come up here and teach my baptism lesson, probably, I want to, I, I still want you to be here. I still want you to support those people. And it's a big deal. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you that as a favor next week. Just make sure you're here. Got a busy week, uh, a prayer night coming up on Monday, which last time we had about 350 people show up in this room and just, just show up to pray, which was pretty awesome. Come do that on Monday. Uh, there's no life groups next week. And then on Friday, we'll have our worship night where we just cram. I don't know how many people in this room and cram them all in here and where we worship. And that's a good entry point. If there's people that's never been to our church. It's a really, really fun night and a way to kind of check it out. And, and uh, I don't know. So invite people to that. It's Friday night. And then we'll do baptism services Saturday and Sunday. Okay. So anyways, if you've never been with us, we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in, and it has pretty much everything I'm going to say on that notes handout. Let me catch up to speed if you haven't been with us. Real quick. You guys probably get sick of hearing this, but real quick. So the Babylonian Empire was sweeping through the world, through Western Asia and through the Middle East. This is about 600 years before Jesus was born, 600 BC. They were taking over most of the known world at that time, and in doing so, they would capture the elite young men of whatever culture they were kind of conquering, ship them back to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, and they would groom them to work under the king when they reached a certain age, okay, once they had been through this kind of three-year-long program to kind of educate them in Babylonian culture. Now, Daniel, who wrote this book of the Bible, and three of his friends, I did this, three of his friends, three of his friends were part of those individuals who were groomed and sent to Babylon to work for the king. Now, Daniel and these other three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, became very, very high-ranking officials, Daniel being the highest of them, and that came because of a relationship that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and uh, Daniel had created over the years, okay? Now, in chapter 4, we see kind of the crescendo, or we see the, the pinnacle of this relationship when Nebuchadnezzar becomes a follower of the true God, which is awesome. That's what makes chapter four so neat, is this pagan king who was very, very powerful and affluential and influential became a follower of the true God. And then when we get into chapter five, we see now that about 25 years has passed 
And now Nebuchadnezzar's son was the king, but he's going to be away out of town. We're going to talk about that here in a second. So Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, a guy named Belshazzar, is now going to be temporarily in power. Now, if you weren't here last week, we talked about this. The only way to find out who we are, the only way to solve our identity crisis is to solve our repentance crisis. At the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar didn't find out who he truly was. He didn't understand what it meant to truly live until he turned his eyes to God, and then God kind of let him regain himself, if if you will. He found who he was once he found out who the true God was. This week, we're going to talk about this. It's a short lesson. We're going to talk about what defines character. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's not everything that defines one's character. But from chapter 5, what we're going to cover today, we're going to see some very, very important things that define who we are, who we should be, I guess. Okay? So I'm going to pray. It's a fun chapter, some fun stuff. Um, We get to talk about some very adult stuff at the beginning of this. So um, bear with me. But I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into this, and we'll see what happens. Okay? Uh, Lord Jesus, God, I thank you. Lord, I pray, God, that you just keep your hand on everyone in this room. Father, open up our ears, open up our eyes to understand your word, to comprehend it, and Lord, to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray for every church in our city this morning, uh, the bigger churches, the smaller churches, the churches that may do things very differently than us. God, as long as they proclaim that you are the way, the truth, and the light, Lord Jesus, that's what we want, God. And we want to support those churches, and we want to advance your kingdom, God, and, and we just want to get behind what you're doing, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you, Lord. Just keep your hand on us. Bless us today. Keep your hand on me as I teach. Help me to be accurate and help me to be uh, gracious, God, and be merciful and gracious with me as I do so, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm in chapter 5 of Daniel. That's right after the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, it's fine. I'm going to read it all to you anyways. So starting in chapter 5, here we go. It says, King Belshazzar held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So fast forward 25 years from the end of chapter 4. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar died in about 562 BC, right? And so about 25 years after chapter 4 has ended, we find that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was temporarily in power and that Daniel was in retirement. His time had passed. At this point, Daniel's probably about in his mid-80s, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar's son, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, was off to war fighting the Persians. If you're a history buff at all, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Persian Empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar's son was off fighting the Persians. And so while he was gone, his son was interim king. Now, no one knew this because they didn't have FaceTime and texting at this time, right? No one knew, but the Persian Empire had already surrounded the city of Babylon and essentially they were in the suburbs. 
They were on the outskirts of the town. They had already kind of infiltrated and they were getting close to downtown. The only thing that divided them from conquering the, the downtown area of Babylon was there was this huge wall around the city, but they had already made their way to that wall. So in the middle of all this turbulence, though they didn't have texting and FaceTime, this, this uh, Belshazzar, this interim king, would have known that the Persians were getting closer and closer and closer. So why in the middle of this turbulent war time would this kid throw a huge party? It's kind of a weird thing to do. So theologians think that's one of three reasons or maybe a combination, I think, of all three of these. The first one is he might have thrown this party because the Babylonian parties always centered around their gods. So this party that we're going to talk about may have been a way of invoking the gods to help out the Babylonians. Another reason why they think he threw this party is he was simply just careless. He was an entitled third-generation king. His grandfather had started the Babylonian empire, so maybe he was just a punk kid, right? He was just being careless. The other thing it could have been is he was so arrogant because the Babylonian empire was the strongest empire in the world Maybe he thought because of the wall around them that no one could ever penetrate that wall. So he had this false sense of security. They're never going to overtake us. They're never going to come and get us. So we're just going to party, right? We don't have to worry about it. More than likely, it's a combination of all three, but specifically number two and number three. He had an attitude of arrogance. He had an attitude of carelessness. And the Bible talks about this in Isaiah and it talks about it again in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's a scripture that's in Isaiah that Paul actually quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You guys have probably heard that phrase before. Let us eat and drink, let us party, and we're not going to worry about tomorrow. Now, this kind of philosophy is antithetical to the Bible's philosophy. I know the Bible says we're not promised tomorrow, but that doesn't mean we act like idiots today. It means that we prepare for eternity. And the philosophy that this king had and the philosophy that a lot of people have nowadays is a philosophy of narcissism. Narcissism, which means they're the center of the universe, right? They're the most important thing. And then an, also a philosophy of what's called fatalism, that there's no hope of eternity. There's no afterlife. So let's just, let's just go crazy right now. We'll never have to pay for this. There's no eternity based on our decisions. So let's eat, let's drink, let's party, let's act like morons because tomorrow we could be dead. So that was the philosophy that they held. So this was not a proper banquet. This isn't like the fundraisers you guys go to. This isn't where everyone sits around and wears like tuxedos and their ties look real nice and they sit at these nice banquet tables. It wasn't that kind of a party. Um, this wasn't a refined banquet. This was more of an orgy. This is where they got together. They had tons of food. They're gorging themselves on food. They're drinking wine until they're so drunk that they can't stand up, right? It's a rave. So they're doing all this stuff. And in the middle of this, there would have been open sexual acts. And so while this whole banquet, this orgy essentially is going on, these thousand nobles were in this room, roughly about the size of this room. And Belshazzar, the interim king, would have been sitting, let's say this is the party, right? You guys are out there eating. Belshazzar would have sat kind of at an elevated separate table, maybe with a couple of his closest friends, because that was the custom of the day. And that was the custom of the day because in Oriental banquets, customs, Asian banquets, they would have gotten their customs from sweeping through Western Asia. 
They would have adopted this custom where the king would sit at a separate table. And the reason why the king would sit separate from everyone and in view of everyone is the one who threw the banquet, the party, set the pace of the party. So essentially, however drunk he got, it prohibited everyone else to get that drunk. Whatever sexual acts he performed up here, they could then do out there. However much food he ate, they could then do out there. And what we learn is a principle from this pagan ceremony that applies to Christians as well. That when we are leaders, we set the atmosphere. And if you're a Christian in this room, whether you consider yourself a leader or not, all Christians in some right are considered leaders by God. If you're a man in here and you're married and you have a family, you are the Lord of your household, as the Bible says it. It doesn't mean that you dominate your wife and suppress your kids, but it means that when it comes down to it, you are the spiritual pace setter of your home. It's unfortunate that many men are not the spiritual pace setters of their home, but that's what the Bible has called us to be. If you're a believer and you're around a lot of non-believers, you are to set the atmosphere, to set the tempo, to set the example of how people should act. And so as believers, we're all called to lead in some capacity. Do you guys know that people are looking at you whether you think they are or not? What you say, how you act, how you respond. We should never be known as the people who gossip at work. We should never be known as the slackers. We should never be known as the ones with bad attitudes. I know we have our slip-ups, but that should not define us as who we are. So in this party, right? It's a heck of a party. At this party, they're gorging themselves they're getting drunk, they're having open sexual encounters, and then it moves to something even worse than that. It moves into blasphemy. So what happened is, is they're all getting drunk and they're partying. Belshazzar says, hey, a long time ago, my grandfather got, he stole all these really, really nice chalices and cups from the Jews. Bring that stuff out. Bring out the gold cups and the silver cups and bring out these vessels that they used to use for their ceremonies. And let's get drunk with that stuff too. So Nebuchadnezzar, this kid's grandfather, even in his wildest days, would have never done that. I remember when I was just crazy hedonistic, right? When I was a horrible non-believer, I was just a bad guy. Even in my worst days, I respected churches. You're not going to do anything to a church. I mean, someone tried to burn ours down a couple of months ago. But anyways, you're not going to do something to a church. So essentially, Belshazzar, if he hadn't have been drunk, he wouldn't have done this either. That's a whole other lesson, right? That we act like idiots when we're, under the, uh, in, when we're intoxicated. Anyways, that's a whole other lesson. But this would have been the equivalent of someone breaking into, let's say, a Catholic church, stealing all the chalices that they use for communion, stealing all the communion wine and going and partying with it. Extremely disrespectful, extremely blasphemous, but that's what they did. And it wasn't by accident. It wasn't like they're drinking wine, getting drunk, and he's like, Oh, wait a second. This is that sacred vessel. It wasn't like that. It was intentional that they went out. And so it would be wrong for us to think that Belshazzar was just stupid and careless, which he was, but it wasn't, that, that's not it. He was intentional at going to these sacred vessels and being blasphemous because no Babylonian party did not involve gods. All the times when they would throw these huge parties, they would invoke gods and they would celebrate gods. So to use that, that let's call it communion wear, in this pagan ceremony was extremely offensive. Now here's something interesting for you theologians in the room. About a generation before this party that we're talking about, 
Another prophet of God, a guy named Jeremiah, wrote down in chapter 50 and 51. Listen, he's a prophet, which means he foretold the future, right? God would give him things and he would write things down before they happened. In chapter 50 and 51 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes down in detail that the Babylonians are going to be partying and an army from the north is going to overtake them. If this young hotshot, Belshazzar, would have spent less time partying and more time reading the word of God, he wouldn't have been overtaken, as we're going to find out in two weeks. If he would have spent time reading the book of the Bible, the the book of Jeremiah, that he made fun of and disrespected, and these Jews that his grandfather had taken captive, if he would have read those things, he could have avoided this fate. Crazy stuff. And so... What we find out at the end of this part that I just read is during this ceremony, they would bring out these these little gods, right? Little things that they had made out of wood and out of gold and out of stone and all these things. And we don't see this a lot in our culture. Like you don't typically go over to your friend's house if they're a non-believer and you're just like, oh, look at the gods you made on your mantle. We don't don't typically do that, right? Unless you're at World Market and you see all those things that they sell. But anyways, (laughs) typically we don't see idols in people's houses. What we see more in American culture is not idolatry. We see more idea, I have a hard time saying this, ideolatry. What we do is instead of making tangible little gods that we worship, what we do in American culture is we create the God that we want to worship in our mind. And we actually do this with Jesus Christ, and we do this with the God of the Old Testament. What we do in American culture, and a lot in Christendom and Christianity, is we tend to want to form Jesus to what we think Jesus should be and form God, the Old Testament God, into what we think he should be. So many people, I'm talking Christian people, want a dethroned Jesus, stripped of his deity, but still a good guy. We love the Jesus that says, feed the homeless. We love the Jesus that says, don't war. We love the Jesus that says, blessed is the peacemaker. But we don't like the Jesus that sits on the throne and judges us. We don't like that Jesus. We want to dethrone that Jesus. We also like the idea of God, but we want an emasculated God who all the stories of the Old Testament that we hear are just fun stories that we tell our kids that just have good morals. They didn't really happen. They're just fun stories that some Jew made up a long time ago, right? So we want to dethrone Jesus and an emasculated God. And we often forget that God does not conform to modern day American culture, that we are to conform to him, Genesis 1.27. So if someone says to me, I believe God would do this, well, I'll say, okay, I'm glad that you have an opinion. What does the word of God say about God's character? Well, I don't believe Jesus would do that. Well, let's go to the Word of God and let's see what Jesus would do. This is our anchor and we must go back to that. Now, I'm glad that you have a brain that formulates opinions, but when it comes to the image of God, this is what sets the pace. This is what defines the characteristics of God, His Word, okay? Next part. Here's where we get into the fun stuff. So in the middle of this party, right, they're just going nuts. I mean, like, they're doing like the electric slide. People are drunk. It's crazy. At that moment, (laughs) the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand, that writing, uh, as the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that his hip joints shook and his knees knocked together. 
The king called out to bring the mediums, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me the interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and will be made the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. Okay, so if if you're one of those people that has to visualize things, this banquet hall, this room I think is 80 foot by about 120 foot, okay? So this banquet hall was 56 feet by 173. It's a big room. We know this because I believe I could be wrong. The Germans discovered in the early 1900s, they did an archaeological uh, discovery of this area of Babylon, and they think they found this specific banquet hall that Nebuchadnezzar had built, okay? Now, what's interesting, in the center of this banquet hall that they unearthed, right, these archaeologists, they found that there was this huge plaster white wall along the long side of this, of this room, 173 uh, foot long room, and in the middle of it was this huge, almost looked like a screen, right? Just a big white board, okay? White piece of plaster. Now, by that would have been a lampstand. It says lampstand. That would have been more like a chandelier. It would have been illuminated by candles, this huge white canvas that sets up this story big time. What this leads me to believe is that God's a fan of PowerPoint. The reason... <laughs> The reason why I believe God's a fan of PowerPoint is all throughout the Bible, he used object lessons. God often used, when Jesus was teaching, he would use a tree or he would position himself to where certain things would be behind him and he he would use scenery and he would use nature and he would use objects. He often used objects. God does the same thing in the Old Testament with a burning bush and different things like that. He uses object lessons. So here in this story, There's this huge white canvas in the middle of this huge room, and it's illuminated. It's just ready for something to happen on it, right? And so don't raise your hand, but if you've ever been drunk, you know that shock brings on sobriety. So in the middle of this drunken party, a hand starts writing on this wall. A hand shows up, writes on this wall, and in the middle of this, this blasphemous, arrogant, entitled young king is about to sober up really, really quickly. So he sees this, and he sees what we call the writing on the wall. Now, most of you guys have heard this phrase, right? We use this phrase in our modern-day culture to show something dramatic that's typically negative. Well, she broke up with me, but I saw the writing on the wall. I lost my job, but we all saw the writing on the wall. The company closed down, but we all saw the writing on the wall. It shows that something bad is going to happen. We still use this phrase. And so Daniel gives us detail about the fear of the people who are in this room who see this thing take place. And it focuses on Belshazzar because you got to think he was probably the closest one to this thing, right? And so he's sitting there, he turns around, sees this hand writing on the wall, this crazy supernatural event take place. And it says that he just went white, white as a ghost, right? And it says that he was so scared that his joints were were shaking and his, his knees were knocking. This guy was terrified and we see that. So what he does is he brings in the Chaldeans, right? If, if, if the Chaldeans were in any other industry, they would have already been fired, right? They're brought in all the time and they always fail. They never do anything. 
So nothing has changed in 25 years. 25 years have passed. It's now two kings removed from King Nebuchadnezzar. The Chaldeans come in to interpret something, and yet again, they cannot do it. This time, though, different from Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar doesn't scare them into bringing them the interpretation. He's so scared, he says, if you guys can just tell me what this means, I'll give you all this stuff. I'll give you all these generous rewards if you can just help me understand what it means. Now, when we read this and we say you'll get a purple robe and a gold chain, we're, what is, that doesn't sound very cool to me, right? What that represents, the purple represents that whoever can interpret this writing will be treated like a king. You'll be treated like royalty. The gold chain represents the fact that you'll be high politically. So you'll be treated like royalty, You'll be a high political character. And what he says is, I'll even elevate you to the third most powerful position in Babylon. Now, the only reason he could give third, that's the best he could offer, is his dad was number one. He was number two. So whoever could interpret this dream, he would make number three, right? So he offers this to all these Chaldeans that are coming in. So once again, we shouldn't be shocked by this. Once again, they come in, they look at it, and they're just like, eh, we don't get it. Again, I don't know how these guys have a job, but none of them could read it. Now, what's fascinating about the fact that they couldn't read the writing on the wall is theologians believe it was written in a language that they could read. It was actually written in Aramaic. Now, a lot of people don't believe it was written in a, in a legible thing, but we'll see next two weeks from now that they could read the words, they could read the letters. More than likely, some people believe maybe they were written up and down vertically. Maybe some people believe that the way that the letters were written was just kind of weird, so maybe they couldn't interpret it. That's probably not it. More than likely, they could read the words written up there, but those words together just didn't make sense. It didn't complete like a thought that they could understand. It was very cryptic in how it was written. So they saw it and they said, we don't, we don't know what these words mean. Putting these three words together, we don't, we don't understand that. So they could not interpret what it said. So here's the thing, if you've ever been to the doctor and you have to get a test, they're just like, okay, we'll give you the results in a week. That's awful, right? We would rather know the bad news than just not know anything. And so what happened is, is he brought these guys in, they're like, ah, we don't know. And so he became more terrified because he'd rather know the bad news than nothing at all. He had to sit on it a little bit longer. And now what's funny is we haven't seen Daniel yet. The one guy that we know can solve this problem, we haven't seen him yet. And the reason why we haven't seen him is he's in retirement. He's gone. He was Nebuchadnezzar's go-to man. He wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's go-to man. And he wasn't this third king. He didn't even know who he was. So he is kind of out of the picture. He wasn't really in the mix anymore. But that brings us to this. Though Daniel was in retirement, though Daniel had kind of moved on to a different chapter of his life, so he thought, though he hadn't been called on in a long time, we as Christians need to be ready whenever God calls us. We as Christians need to understand that life is short. I think we often think that we're going to have forever to get our junk together. And the Bible does not, it does not promise us forever. In fact, the Bible doesn't promise us tomorrow. It says that. The Bible says that life is like a vapor or like smoke, that it comes out and it's gone. And it's gone very, very quickly. Even if you live to be in your 90s or 100 years old, what is 100 years compared to eternity? Life is short. Life is short. And the Christian needs to understand that A, life is short, and B, the purpose of this life, the meaning of life that all these people are seeking to understand, the meaning of life is to honor God, to serve God, to honor His kingdom, 
until we inherit that kingdom. Our life is a test to see if God can trust us with everything. He looks at us and says, can I trust Corey to inherit this beautiful kingdom that I've created? And we need to understand that as Christians, time is never static. We are either moving towards Christ or away from Christ. There's no pause button in the Christian's life. We don't have time to push a pause button. We always must be moving either towards Christ or we are digressing away from Christ. Time is never static. And we always need to be ready for the call of the king. Okay? Last part. See? Let me get you guys out of here early. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. She said, may the king live forever. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the divineers, the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one named Belshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and perception, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he'll give you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, has brought from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirits of the gods in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom. Now the wise men, the mediums, were brought before me to read this inscription and to make its interpretation known to me, but they couldn't give me the interpretation. However, I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Okay, so the party has just gotten nuts, right? The party gets nuts, a hand shows up, writes on the wall, and then the party goes from being nuts and crazy and joyful, if you will, to now people are mourning, they're weeping, they're crying, they're scared to death. And so the queen, maybe in another part of the palace, hears all this going on, makes her way into the banquet hall, and she's the one that kind of brings a little bit of order to the chaos. Now, Nidocris is her name. She has gone down in history as being intelligent, ambitious, and level-headed. So we know from history that this woman had a pretty good head on her shoulders, right? She was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and so she was raised under a very intelligent king who became a follower of the true God. She comes in, and she kind of brings a little bit of order. She comforts Belshazzar by telling him to remain calm. Hey, settle down. There's a man in your kingdom who can help you. There's a guy named Daniel that if you call him, he's done it for my dad, and he can do it for you too. So it's odd that she referred to him as Daniel. I was talking with someone last night, and the, in the different uh, commentaries that I've read, they don't, they don't know why she referred to him by his Hebrew name and not his Babylonian name, but someone brought up to me last night a good, ex or a good reason why, possibly, is she grew up either knowing Daniel or at least hearing the stories of Daniel by her dad, Nebuchadnezzar. So she understood how much of a, a, an extraordinary man this was, and so he had this just really awesome reputation with the previous generation. 
And she says, this guy has an extraordinary spirit. He has knowledge. He has perception. He's interpreted dreams. He's explained riddles. He's a problem solver. Call this guy and he will fix this situation. And so Belshazzar didn't even know who this dude was. Those, those of you who've lived a little bit, um, isn't it crazy how just a couple of generations removed, how the entitlement or how the tone has changed with people? So you have this king that started it all, right? Nebuchadnezzar started the empire. And just a couple of generations removed, you have a guy that doesn't even know how the, who saved the empire. He doesn't even know the history of the empire. And so when Daniel comes in, this young, entitled, spoiled king doesn't refer to him as a prophet, doesn't refer to him as the guy that has saved his grandfather's life on multiple occasions, doesn't refer to him as even being the leader of Babylon for seven years. We talked about it last week. It doesn't say in the Bible that that Daniel led Babylon, but more than likely he did. When Nebuchadnezzar was freaking out in the field, right, Daniel came in and led Babylon. And so when he comes in, this young king doesn't address him as that. He just says, hey, you're one of those slaves that my grandfather picked up. And so he doesn't show him a whole lot of respect. Nevertheless, though, Belshazzar did say this. He says, I've heard that you're insightful. I heard that you're very smart. I heard that you're very wise. And again, at this time, Daniel would have been somewhere in his mid-80s more than likely. So Daniel comes in. This old wise prophet comes in. Maybe sits down or he stands before the king. And in the backdrop, you see this writing, right? this supernatural writing that had taken place on this wall. And so he paints him this picture, Belshazzar does. He says, we're partying like crazy. And all of a sudden in the middle of this party, this happens. And so he, he, he gives him the same promise that he gave the other wise men, the other Chaldeans. He said, look, if you'll just tell me what this means, Daniel, I know we've never met. I know you don't know me, but if you would just tell me what this means, I'll make you the third most powerful person. Isn't it funny that he offers a guy that was once the most powerful person Now you can be third most powerful. And Daniel's like, kind of been there and done that. But anyways, so he offers him all these things, all these rewards. Now look, Daniel would have never, this is so big. Daniel would have never been considered if he hadn't displayed consistency and integrity with people that did not believe like him. Daniel would have never been considered Listen, when times got tough for non-believers, they would have never considered calling in the believer if he hadn't been consistent and didn't have integrity. Do you guys see where I'm going with that? There's a lot of people that do not believe in the true God around us all the time. Statistically, in this city, about 70% do not call on the same God that you call on. They do not believe in the, the true God in the way that you believe in the true God. And if you're consistent if you have integrity, if you love people over time, when the junk hits the fan, a lot of them will call you in and they will say, what do I do? What do I do? And then you will have the opportunity to lead and to speak truth to them and to solve problems and to help them. And so that brings this up. How then is our character defined? We're just going to look at a couple of things from this chapter. Again, this list doesn't tell you everything that defines character, but just a couple that are brought up from this chapter. The first one is what I just talked about. We must have consistency, which all that means is integrity over time. Integrity over time. Doesn't mean that we don't mess up. 
doesn't mean that you sometimes don't lose your cool. doesn't mean that you always have to say the right thing, but you are consistent. Look, Christians, if you're a Christian in here, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Do what you say you're going to do, work hard, show up on time, be consistent in people's lives. And if you do that, they will trust you and they will listen to you and your character will be defined by your consistency and your integrity. The second thing is this. Our character is defined when we won't get caught. I talked about this story, um, I don't know, a month or so ago. Elise and I were at a restaurant where we were somewhere and I didn't think anyone would know us, right? In Franklin or something. We were out of, out of town, right? 30 minutes outside of town. So we were somewhere where we didn't think people would know us. And our waitress wasn't, wasn't a very efficient waitress, right? And so I, that, I never drink sodas, but that night I got like a, you know, a Sprite or something. I don't know. So when I do drink sodas, I drink manly sodas, right? So anyway, so, um, so I'm drinking a soda and we're sitting at this restaurant and like, you know, she never refilled my drink. And, and so I remember she came by and she's like, you know, do you want to refill? And I'm like, yeah, sometime this week, you know, if that's cool. You know, I said something I shouldn't have. I was a jerk. And then right after I made this rude comment, she goes, yeah, yeah, I'll get you another refill. And by the way, great sermon on Sunday. You know what that exposed about me? I treat people differently if I don't think they'll ever come to the church. And so I had to step back and say, you know what? My character needs to be readdressed. Do I still treat people well, even if they don't know who I am? Do I still treat people well in different zip codes? If I'm never going to get caught. Let's take it to an extreme. Your character is defined by how you handle the laptop at two o'clock in the morning and you know no one's gonna catch you. That was sobering. Character is defined when your wife will never find out. Character is defined when your husband will never know that you flirt with that guy at work. Character is defined when you're doing your taxes and it asks how much you give. Character is defined when you will not get caught. The truth be known, we always get caught. So character is defined when no one sees us. Character is also defined by our work ethic. Character is defined by what kind of reputation we have at our businesses, at our schools, college students, at our high schools, at our middle schools. It's defined on our work ethic because the Bible says this, that everything we do on earth, do it to the best of our abilities here because it doesn't just give honor to our earthly boss, it gives honor to our eternal boss. Christians should never be known as lazy. Christians should never be known as the one who's consistently late. Christians should not be known as the ones that say yes and don't come through on their promises. Christians should be known as the hardest workers, the most humble workers, the most consistent workers, the most honest workers. That's how Christians should be known. And when we're not known as that, and guys, if you own a business in here and have some kind of Christian emblems on your business, you better be a good, honest businessman or businesswoman. You better have a lot of integrity. If you're going to throw around this cross on your, on your corporation or your business, you better do some really, really good work because that cross represents the greatest work that's ever been done, right? So you better, better make sure you honor that. So we are known by our work ethic in this kingdom, and it gives glory to that kingdom. Another thing that defines our character is this, pressure, pressure. Whenever pressure is put on us, that's typically when people take the rightful place in the line of characters. 
When pressure is put on us, that's when we truly start to see what people are. People come to me sometimes and something will happen, a situation, someone will do something or say something or there'll be something when they're driving and they'll flip someone off or say a word, a four-letter word that Christians shouldn't say. And they say, oh, that's not me. No, wait a second. The Bible says that it's out of an abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So it is you. And it was laying dormant here and when pressure was put on there, it comes out. It is you. It is you. It is you. So when we blame it on pressure, it's when pressure is applied to the believer, that's when we truly see what the believer is. It's when pressure is applied to people. It's when tough times arise that we truly start to see what we're made out of. How are we, as a Christian movement, going to survive as a Christian movement when we can't consistently come to church when the weather's bad? Or when our favorite TV show is on? Or our favorite sports team is playing? How are we going to survive it when the words of revelation come true and we are under extreme persecution? If we can't make it now because you guys aren't completely satisfied with the sound and the lights and the, 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 the temperature in here, if we can't make it now, if we can't make it to church consistently now, if we can't read our Bibles now in the nation that we live in, and the freedoms that we have, if we can't make it now, we're going to be in really, really bad shape during the years of tribulation. We're going to be in really, really bad shape when the things that the Bible says are going to come to pass start to come to pass. We're in bad shape, guys. It's when pressure is put on us that we truly start to see. It's when legislation is passed that we truly start to see people's theology. Now, that was the negative side of that. Now, let me show you the positive side of that. It is also in crisis. It is also when pressure is applied. It is also when things are falling apart that the men and women who hold the keys of the kingdom of God stand up, cry out to God for help, and by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they change the environment in which they are in. What I mean by that is this. If you hate the fact that the nuclear family is breaking down, stand up, cry out to God for help, and change your family dynamics. Amen. Men in here, if you hate the way your family is going, stand up, cry out to God for help, and by His grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit, you can change your nuclear family. If you hate the dynamics of the public school system, don't wait for them to pray with your kids. You pray with your kids. Stand up, cry out to God, and change your kids' outlook on when they go into the public school system. If you hate the way MTSU looks, change it. If you hate the way that politics look, pray for them. Stand up, cry out to God, and change the environment, change the culture. Change it. All throughout the Bible, God is looking for men and women to stand up, to stand up. I love, I think it's the sixth chapter of Isaiah. God says, I've looked all around the world for someone to go and stand in the gap between my anger and these people that don't know me. And Isaiah says, I'll go. He stood up, he depended on God's Holy Spirit, and he stood in the gap. He changed the environment. He changed the world around him. Do you know what they said in Antioch? Not Antioch, Antioch. When the Christians were coming into Antioch, they looked at the Christians and they said, oh my gosh, here comes the men who are flipping the world upside down. Stood up, cried out to God, 
and they change the world. From 12 men, now what? There's two and a half billion believers in Jesus? And that's just currently, right now. From 12 people, they change the environment. They change the atmosphere. They literally change the world. Now, what's your situation? If it's economic, if it's family, if it's your marriage. Men, if your marriage is falling apart, it is your responsibility to take the initiative to put it back together. Whatever situation you're in, relationship dynamics, spiritual dynamics, the places where you work, the people you hang out with, if we will stand up and take responsibility, if we will cry out to God and say, God, if you'll just speak through me, if you'll just fill me with your Holy Spirit, by your grace, I can make a positive impact on the people around me. I can make a positive impact on my children and my spouse. I can make a positive impact on the schools and the institutions that we go to. And God is just waiting for people to cry out, to stand up, and to be used. And that's you. And that's me. Sitting back on Facebook complaining about all the things you don't like is not doing anything. Whenever people come up and say, Corey, the church should be doing this and this and this, my reply is, you're the church. Go do it. Go fix it. If you don't like this, when do you want to start doing that? We'll train you, we'll equip you, we'll send you out. Instead of taking shots from the couch, right? Stand up, cry out to God, and then go out and change it. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, God, there are people in this room, Lord, that are going through. Lord, there are people in this room that are going through junk. And Lord, there are people in this room who are near people going through junk. So the people going through junk in this room, I pray, Father, that they trust you enough to cry out to you to cry out to you, to seek your face, to seek your word, to dig into your word, to trust you, God. And by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, Father, you will empower them to take control of whatever situation they're in. Father, for the people in this room that are, are around people hurting, God, you have called us, you have called us to be the vessels, the instruments, the tools to inflict change on the environments around us. So Father, I pray, God, that you give people courage to stand up. I pray that you give people courage, God, to take ownership of their workplace and their classroom and, and their families and their marriages. I pray, God, that we stand up and not in a, in a brutal, offensive way, but in a gracious, loving way, God, that we start to change the culture around us, that our sphere of influence around us, that we start to positively impact that. God, if there's anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with you, if there are people in this room that are here, God, because they keep hitting the wall, Lord, show them how to get over that wall, God. Show them, Lord. Speak to their hearts today and start to soften their hearts, God. Start to, start to use your Holy Spirit, God, to touch their hearts, Father. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, guys, there's people up here to my left that would love to pray for you for anything anything, they will pray for you, okay? There's also communion up here. There's three tables on my right, three tables on my left. Now that represents a God that gave his only son 
who died for our sins and his Holy Spirit was poured out on us. And listen, his Holy Spirit resides in us. If we call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit resides in us. And that Holy Spirit gives us the ability to have courage to stand up, to trust in God, and through our trust in God, through his grace, through his Holy Spirit, everyone in this room who can hear me speak can make a positive impact on the people around them. And they can make a positive impact on their own lives. Not because of you, but because of the Holy Spirit in you. If you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, communion is there, ready for all of you. If you need prayer, please don't let your pride get in the way. Go get prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God. There are people in this room that could move mountains if they would just stand up and cry out to you. God, I pray that you give them courage. I pray, God, that you, that you just stand beside them, God, and you walk with them, God. For those people in this room who are hurting, people who are around people who are hurting, God, equip us, God. Speak to us, God. Lead us, God. Humble us and strengthen us, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We put all this in your hands, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much.